only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. He has won his fourth Indianapolis 500. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Now, it sounds, I realize, probably intriguing to you, maybe enigmatic to you if you're listening to this program and you're thinking to yourself, now, wait a minute, I know Jake Quarry, not that I would expect everyone listening to know that, but if you are somebody listening who I grew up with or knows me, you might know that my birthday's not for a while, so it's not today. Mike Thompson, I'm not even certain. Your birthday is when? My birthday is the same day as the Indianapolis Motor Speedway's birthday, March 20th. Is it really? Yes. That's very fitting. It is fitting for me. By the way, today is kind of a birthday for the Speedway in its own right. A lot of people thought that today was the day of the very first event in 1909. Uh, It actually was this weekend, I guess, that celebration. There was a rain out, I think. And so it was the 13th, if I'm not mistaken. I saw Doug Bowles correct that. But it is also today the birthday of... If I said Rufus, most people would know who that is, right? Rufus. You got to say Rufus. Rufus Parnelli Jones is celebrating a birthday today. Mike, he is how many years old? He is older than you and I. He is that indeed. Is he older than the two of us combined? He is not. He right? is definitely not. That is correct. <laughs> uh, he is is it 88 or 89? He is 88 today, right? I believe he's 88. Yes, that is so correct. So Parnelli Jones is 88 years old and... For that reason, tonight we are going to talk about Parnelli Jones. We're going to spend the hour talking about it. Again, good evening to you. This is Beyond the Bricks. My name is Jake Quarry. That is the voice of Mike Thompson. Sam Rumps is on the big board. Donald Davidson will join us on this program as well. Talking about Mike, a driver that, you know, obviously Parnelli is a legend of the Speedway. He comes back, and it was great to see that he came back this year for the Indianapolis 500. When you talk about drivers that have legend attached to them in non-winning years parnelli jones i think jumps to the forefront as much as anybody right i think parnelli is almost more well known for the year he didn't win that's in 67 yeah, yeah. than he then he gets credit for the 63 win i mean the, the 67 near win in the turban i mean he a lot of people to me when parnelli's name comes up comes up he, they talk about the turbine. They talk about how dominant that car was, and they talk about how much they were either on the side of the turbines or against the turbines. But uh, I think Parnelli gets a lot more uh, discussion attached to his name about 1967 than he even does 63. His record in Indianapolis is truly remarkable. And again, when we're talking about somebody who won the race just once, I say just, I mean, still, it's you know impressive to be an Indianapolis 500 winner in its own right. But running the race seven times... But when you look at the fact that he could be a multiple winner and, for that matter, Mike, the number of times that he led and dominated races and led laps, I mean, he had a a stretch there where he was as good up front as anybody at this place. Think about the fact that Parnelli Jones, you know, he – he hasn't raced in the Indianapolis 500 in more than 50 years. He's still in the top 10 for all-time laps led. That should tell you how dominant that guy was. And, uh, I mean, in seven races, right? Yeah, I mean, just unbelievable. I mean, there's only there were only a couple races that he didn't lead. He didn't lead 65 because, you know, basically Clark led the whole race. Uh, and A.J. led a couple of the laps, but Clark basically dominated. 
but for the most part, I mean, Parnelli led almost every other race he was in. And, and Donald will tell you later, and I'm sure he'll tell you us both later in the show when he's on with us, um, you know, there were a couple of years that Parnelli didn't win that he was seen as by other competitors as the quote unquote moral winner of the race. Um, and 62 really comes to mind for that for me. I mean, Roger Ward, uh, Donald will tell you the story way better than I could ever do it. But, uh, you know, Roger Ward basically says, hey, you know, Parnelli was the moral winner in 62, not not me. I mean, I won the race, but but really the 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 moral winner of the race was Parnelli because he was so good that day. Now, as we'd mentioned, and I think. Mike, you have a better barometer on these things than do I. So I will ask, I'll lean on your expertise here. The The way that he became Parnelli, that story on a 1 to 10 scale, if it's the most obvious thing in the world being a 10, and if it's completely esoteric and very few people know the story, it's a 1, what would you score that? Um, I think not that many people really know how he became okay. Parnelli. So in my time, let me tell you what, in my recollection, what I remember from interviewing Parnelli Jones of what he has said about how he became Parnelli. Rufus Jones is his name, and Rufus Jones, like not unlike Mario Andretti for that matter, began racing cars before the age of when you know you had your licensing or whatever it was to race cars. And so as a result of that, and it may have been also with some some of the drivers, They'll tell you that, you know, in their early years, their, their parents didn't want them racing, and so they were kind of doing it incognito, that kind of a thing. And so Rufus Jones wanted to race cars, and I can't recall if it was that he was not of age or that his parents were opposed to it or whatever it might be, but he decided that he needed an alias, and there was a girl that he had grown up with in school, and whether or not he had had a crush on her or he just knew her at school and was friends with her and it was a, whatever it may be, but her name was Parnell. And so he decided to go by Parnell Jones, but in putting it on the side of the car, just decided to add a little flair. So the eye went on the end and it became Parnelli. Parnell's actually his middle name. Is it I really? Understand. That's where I believe it came from. So I thought he told, I could have I, sworn I, to you he told I, me. To, I, see, I, I believe his given name is Rufus Parnell Jones. And that's where Parnelli comes from, is that... I thought for sure he told me that maybe he was now that, joking around now with Now, that, that may be, but the way I have always You're right, though, I think... Is par- uh, because I, the, reason I, the reason that comes to mind for me is, uh, you know, obviously I have a large autograph collection, and some of my autographs that I have had Parnelli signed now that you mention to me... It, now that you mention it, I think that's right, that it's he, Rufus Parnell Jones, He right? has signed a few of the autographs to me, Rufus Parnell Jones, or and I've got a couple of them that he's signed RPJ, um, where he, he where he sent me a note in the mail or something, and he just put RPJ. So uh, I I believe and you are correct. I'm looking at it right now. His given middle name is Parnell. Yeah. I, I, I matter of fact, I know for a fact because so, we were at. I can tell you exactly where we were the Firestone Garage at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway when he told the story about a girl in school. And maybe you know now that I think of it, Mike, it might be that. A girl that he was friends with is the one to, that told him to go by Parnelli. Maybe that's what that I'm may, thinking of. That may that may be the case. But uh, as I said, his given name is is Rufus Parnell Jones, and and Parnelli was a nickname that I understand came from high school. So it may have been from that era, you right? Know, that were for someone someone, and it just stuck. And but what's interesting about Parnelli, if you look at, there's probably no driver 
other okay, than maybe Bill Vukovic. We know that Wikipedia is all-knowing. Wikipedia claims that a boyhood friend started calling him Parnelli because he was 17 and was a minor and needed an alias for racing. So he came up with yeah, Parnelli. That, that would make some sense. There's probably no driver other than Bill Vukovic who's had their name misspelled more in a racing program, though, than Parnelli Jones. You think because, so? Oh, I, I can tell you I have probably 10 or 12 racing programs that – Parnelli is spelled in all kinds of crazy ways, and and they totally missed it, and totally totally missed it, and totally botched it. So, um, I would say that uh, between him and Vukovic, there have been a number of different uh, misspellings and programs. Okay, we actually have a clip, as I understand it, Parnelli explaining his name. So let's let's just go ahead and out myself here for completely recalling this incorrectly. But here's Parnelli Jones, Rufus on being Parnelli. Well, I think it is. It's very gratifying, and uh, you know, and my career has been very good to me. You know, and uh, except for my, uh, you know, I'd be perfect if it wasn't for my fact that my younger son got hurt. But uh, it's nice that people still remember you, and I think my name rings a bell, Parnelli. You know, uh, I know one time the Italian newspaper said there's two. Italian drivers uh, running in America. One was Andretti, and the other one was Parnelli. So they, uh, you know, it's a catchy name anyway. So I think that's played a great part in that. So I guess that was more on the fun of having the name of Parnelli coming from Parnell. That's an interview I did with him here at, at Emmis a few years ago. We we were fortunate. We we got Parnelli to come in studio here at Emmis, and we were starting to do the Heroes of the Five Hundred shows. And I got Parnelli to come in for about an hour and just talk about his career, which was which was a great, great blast for me. And just sit there and just talk to Parnelli. And, you know, Parnelli's one of my favorite all-time people. And, you know, he, he was so giving of his time that day. And uh, that particular interview and several of the other cuts, I think, that we have lined up for tonight came from that particular, uh, particular interview that I did with him that day. Parnelli Jones came to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in 1961. As a matter of fact, here he comes to a racetrack in a race where he obviously qualified well. He started in fifth in his first Indianapolis 500, finished in 12th that season. But it didn't take long for Parnelli Jones in the 1961 Indianapolis 500, which of course would be the year that A.J. Foyt got the first of his four wins. But it didn't take long for Parnelli Jones to show that he had an acclamation to the world's most famous racetrack. And now Parnelli Jones has taken the lead. Parnelli Jones is running first with Eddie Sack second and Jim Rathman third, Roger Ward fourth. There's a real battle for the lead. And Parnelli Jones, the rookie, is now leading. This is going to be a tremendous race, there's no question about it. Barring that yellow flag, which has not come out yet, and we're crossing our fingers it doesn't all day, the pit strategy and speed and efficiency of the crews will make the difference in the event, as Freddie Agamation predicted before the race began to us today. Parnelli would finish 192 laps in that race, but he was the last car running, finishing in 12th place in the 1961 Indianapolis 500. But the reality is, Mike, that all of a sudden, already, as you heard them mention, there was a new name that was there, and there was no doubt about the fact that this was a youngster that was going to be a real force to be reckoned with at the Speedway. Well, that, I think Donald will probably touch on this again as well later, but there, Parnelli was one of those, you know how we have in baseball, you have a guy who's a prospect like a Mike Trout who you know everybody knows is coming, and then when he gets here, there's so much fanfare. Parnelli was that guy. Um, you know, everybody, when Herdebees got here in 60, uh, Herdebees was like, you know, I'm grabbing the headlines, but wait till, wait till Parnelli Jones gets here. And so Parnelli was like that rated rookie. And so when Parnelli got here, uh, you know, he really burst on the scene. And and he, 
you know, he had a chance to win that first year. I mean, as a rookie, he led some early laps in really an unfortunate situation uh, that happened with, believe it or not, a rock um, actually is what, you know, basically kind of took him out of contention a little bit. And when you talk about that, let's have Parnelli Jones explain exactly how his race was affected by, let's just say, debris and making things a little less clear for Parnelli Jones in 1961. I actually was leading the race, and uh, one of the cars we were lapping or something uh, threw up uh, something and nailed me in the uh, left eye, just, well, actually below my eye a little bit, and or in, I guess it was in the eyebrow. But anyway, it kind of filled my goggles up full of blood for a while. Finally, it quit, but uh, shortly after there, my car lost a cylinder. I had to come into pits and, you know, put in a new spark plug and go back out. So in 61, you've got, you're coming in, and I guess you're probably like constantly having to cover up your eye and maybe put a raw steak on it, right, Mike, to to get better. And, And you're thinking to yourself, well, wow, this is a more physical race than I anticipated. And then it did not take long, though, as we talked about, he was on the map already. Then in 1963, just two years later, it all came together for Parnelli Jones in what, of course, would be his lone Indianapolis 500 win in 1963. But here's how it sounded. And there's the checkered flag for Parnelli Jones, the winner of the 1963 500-mile race. And Parnelli from Torrance, California, wins the 500. Parnelli, excuse me there. um, Parnelli Jones obviously getting that win. And I think at that time, Mike, it's probably safe to say that there was probably the assumption that that was going to be the first of many, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, that obviously wasn't without a little bit of controversy in 1963 because of the the oil situation. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there were, everybody thought that this would be the first of, of many, many wins for Parnelli Jones. Absolutely. Parnelli Jones talking about the 1963 Indianapolis 500 win. They were contemplating on black flagging me, and, of course, I didn't have any idea they were. Uh, the oil that was coming out of it came onto my left rear tire. If anybody was bothering anybody, it was bothering me. And then it quit. It quit leaking, and... Uh, I run next to the last lap of the race. I run one of the quickest laps to run all day long. But it was it was oily all day. I mean, it was two or three cars that they pulled out of the race that was really dumping oil. Now, Parnelli Jones winning Indy in 1963. Who knows if people at that point thought to themselves automatically, you know, 58 years from now, two guys are going to be talking about Parnelli on his 88th birthday and debating where Parnelli came from and talking about the rock in 61 etc but I think even then it probably wasn't understood when he took the swig of milk that his life had changed forever but certainly Parnelli Jones would be the first to tell you that back in 1963 his life in fact changed when he was an Indianapolis 500 champion one of the things winning the 500 opens the doors for you a lot of ways financially and and certainly puts you in a stature uh, that uh, that you always have have there. And uh, when people come and talk to you, they, you're a 500 winner, you know. And and the Indianapolis 500 being the biggest race in the world, as far as I'm concerned, and uh, always will be. But uh, uh, it's just nice to be a, a part and be a winner. Mike, the thing about Parnelli Jones today at 88 years old for those that have not had the fortune and the pleasure as you and I have to have been around him on a couple of occasions as an adult um, I mean for us as adults 
Parnelli Jones, I mean, well into recent years. I mean, obviously he's in his upper 80s now, but you can still tell, you can see by looking at the guy like, okay, this I wouldn't want to arm wrestle this guy. You know what I mean? I've always thought the guy was carved out of granite. Yeah, totally. I mean, forearms. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. There's no no question about it. You would not want to have tussled with, with Parnelli Jones. And Parnelli Jones also was really smart with the money that he had won in terms of parlaying that into businesses that were able to keep him, you know, to the forefront and, and relevant and really a real player within motorsports throughout his entire retirement years, et cetera. Yeah, and I mean, he, and he'll tell you he didn't really retire. I mean, he stopped driving Indy cars, but I mean, remember he had a great uh, Trans Am career. I mean, he drove, you know, off road and, and Big Ole and all these different cars and things like that. But yeah, you're right. I mean, he, he parlayed his name and, and his success into, you know, Firestone Tire Business. And he had all those stickers. Remember, I got my stones from Parnelli Jones right. that, you know, you used to see on cars and things like that. And, and, you know, he, he was still a household name well after his driving career and of course then he you know became a car owner and won the 500 with with a uh, big al won the championship with joe leonard and had the super team and things like that i mean so i mean parnelli jones has been relevant uh long after he stopped driving an indycar uh donald davidson is of course the historian for the indianapolis motor speedway and in talking about parnelli jones and really celebrating parnelli jones on this his 88th birthday few can do it better than donald and that's why he's going to join us next on beyond the bricks Back here on Monument Circle in Indianapolis, Jake Query, Mike Thompson. This is Beyond the Bricks. We've been talking about Parnelli Jones, who is celebrating his 88th birthday today. And joining us now to talk about that and more, he is the historian of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, talking about Donald Davidson. And Donald, um, first off, it's great to talk to you again. And, you know, as we get set for a weekend of doubleheader racing in Indianapolis, but let's talk about Parnelli Jones, Mike and I were just saying that Parnelli's an interesting guy. You might disagree with me here, but as a kid growing up in this town and not being around when he won the Indianapolis 500, I certainly knew of the greatness of Parnelli Jones, but it seemed like Parnelli, almost more than any other driver, the conversation and the narratives that my dad and other people told me about Parnelli Jones was as much about races where he dominated and should have won almost more so than telling me about the race that he actually did win when talking about the Indianapolis 500 bottom line is this is a guy who was extremely dominant at Indianapolis during his seven runnings yes and and you just hit on a point there he only had seven starts but um it was just phenomenal i mean when when somebody would look at the records and just say well he won once so you know a lot of other people won once but there was something about parnelli um it was almost like the arrival of mario and uh, and some others where he was highly touted because he had done so well it was it was very very smart maybe we can get into this uh, in a little bit he 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 made some very, very good decisions, um, one of them being that he was offered cars to drive in the 19650 and he turned them down because he wanted to run a full season of championship racing before he came back to the Speedway. And uh, uh, one thing led to another, and he actually did quite a bit of tire testing. So he had a lot of miles 
on his uh, under his belt at the speedway before he ever drove in his in his first 500. Well, he was highly touted in '61, and I think actually was even considered as a as a potential winner as a rookie. And um, he qualified fifth, led, and then had some problems. He was actually hit. A, a rock hit him over the um, over the eye, and and uh, it caused a, 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 quite a gash. Which, uh, and this is a little gruesome. Um, it bled, and and the blood would fill up in his goggles, and he would have to lift the goggle every now and again to to let the uh, the the blood uh, flow out. So if anybody's offended by that, I I uh, I apologize, but it it stunned him. But he hung in there. And then the thinking also is that he actually burned a piston, and it may have been a miscalculation on his part in the cockpit because he was dazed. Anyway, he ended up um, finishing the race. He was flagged off in 12th place. Then in 62, he completely dominated. I think he led, what, like 120 at the first, 125 laps or something like that. And then he had um, the brakes failed and that was the year that he did the first 150 by the way which uh, really put him on the map as the, as the first to qualify in excess of 100 miles of 150 miles an hour and uh, do a lap in under one minute anyway so he led the first half but the brakes failed and uh, he went ahead a lot of people would have come in and uh, he made at least one pit stop. I don't know if he had to make two with no brakes, but at least one. And um, he had to really, because in in those days, uh, you would accelerate to come down the straightaway and then lift and even tap the brake for the turns. It, it was not as constant a speed as it has become in recent years. So you needed the brakes, and he didn't have any. Well, he eventually faded to seventh place, and, and uh, rather than go into all of that, um, he should have won that race. And, in fact, Roger Ward uh, confided that he did not feel that his 1962 victory was a great race for him because he said we were down on power, and he actually said morally that was Parnelli's race. So... When he wins in 63, he's overdue. And then he also leads it in 64 in one of the last roadsters. He and Foyt had a great battle for a few laps. But uh, I think that by leading in 64, I think Parnelli was the first person to lead in his first four starts. Now, Jim Clark tied that, and I think Tony Canaan did. Tony Canaan get to like seven or eight, I think. But uh, anyway, Jim uh, Parnelli held that record. Well, then in '67, of course, with the turban, and uh, he led a massive number of laps. And I'm a little hazy now. I th- did he lead like 170 of the of the uh, of 197 before the, uh, uh, the the failure in in the in the transmission of bearing failed or, or, or something and rendered the, uh, the, the the turbine was running, but it couldn't deliver the power to the wheel. So, 171 anyway, he led in that race. It, it is what? 171. 171 yeah. out of out of 197 that he completed. Okay. And then, so that, and that was his last race. So um, he led 492 laps in, uh, so in, in his seven starts, 
He led five of the seven, and this I think is amazing because everybody has one off year. Um, in 65, he finished second, and in 66, he dropped out running second. And so the worst race that he ever had was to get to second and not finish. And uh, so it was, it was just phenomenal. But more about Parnelli was his... Um, um, it, a very sharp guy. I don't think he had a, a great deal of education, and yet he had street smarts and was great about aligning himself with the right people and making the right business decisions. I don't know that Parnelli finished high school, but he had a very strong business sense, and maybe we can get into that a, a little bit. But as far as the driving is concerned, his skill on the track was so admired by the other drivers, and, and over a period of years, I was interested in what drivers had to say. It was a, you know, it's a, a, a corny question to say, you know, who do you think was the best, who was the best that you ran against? And, and most of them were very evasive, but I found that in private, it was very interesting to hear what the other drivers had to say. And, and I won't reveal any names, but I will tell you that I had more first-place votes for Parnelli Jones than any other driver, and including from Europe. Uh, there was a multiple world champion from a different country who said we thought Parnelli was the best of the American drivers at Indianapolis. Donald, one of the things we we did we talk a little bit about 1967 in the first segment, but I think one of the things that gets overlooked sometimes is had Parnelli pulled that off in 1967, he would have been probably the we we could have considered him the first spin to win winner, right? Because oh, he uh, did have a spin. Yes, he collected. He got to, he tangled up with Leroy Yarbrough. That is correct. Uh, I'll tell you something also that Parnelli is the only person. Let me see. I think if I if this is still correct, I think he is the only person who led four at least four hundred miles of the five hundred miles twice. I think he's the only person that did that. And uh, one was in a winning effort, and one was in a non-winning effort. And then, of course, he was so proficient at other things. But if you look at you know, he only won, and I'll say, I put quote marks around that, he only won six USAC national championship races. But they they were pretty major victories. And, and the wins for um, uh, Lotus at Milwaukee, the, the Milwaukee 200 and the Trenton 264. And Colin Chapman and, and Jim Clark were very impressed with Parnelli. And uh, he, Chapman actually talked to Parnelli because he knew he was a good road racer. He talked to him about running in Europe to go Grand Prix racing. And Parnelli declined. And the reason he did was that he knew about team orders and that he would have to be you know, number two, if you like, to Jim Clark. And he thought, no, I'd rather stay home and, and try and win. And then when he quit, he announced his retirement from Indianapolis competition in 1968, very much at, at, uh, at the top of his game. And there was the opportunity for him to drive one of the wedge turbines, which he declined in favor of uh, Joe Leonard. And he did that for business reasons and the fact that he had, um, you know, uh, one or two small boys that time. I don't know if he had a second child or not, but 
But um, and another point I'd like to make is is that in '64 or so, Firestone gave a Firestone store to several of their drivers in uh, different forms of, of uh, racing. And rather than uh, identify who those were, um, a couple did okay. Um, one um, eventually uh, had the store taken away from it and given to somebody else. But Parnelli was the only one who added, I think he was the only one who added a second store, a Parnelli Jones Firestone store. And then a third and a fourth, and it grew and grew. And at the time that he sold the business, but kept but stayed on as a consultant and had his name over the uh, over the marquee still, although he was no longer the owner, he had 45 Firestone stores. So, just phenomenal business sense. And then uh, uh, such a successful car owner. With Al Unser and and with Mario, they had a Formula One team, and uh, there just seemed to be no limits to uh, to what Parnelli could do. In terms of Parnelli and his retirement, whether or not it was too early, whether it was at the right time, uh, Parnelli Jones himself it has spoken to that. Here's Parnelli. Uh, not really. I think uh, you know. First of all, I started racing when I was 17 years old, and. Uh, uh, I had sacrificed uh, my earlier life without a family, and I loved children, and uh, and I kind of got married, and you know, in '67, and kind of changed my whole life about that time. But I didn't quit racing by any means. <clears throat> what I did was uh, made a decision at that time to quit running open cockpit cars. So that's when I did the Trans Am and some stock car racing, the Baja races, things like that. And so I stayed doing that for a long period of time. And even later, drove some vintage races and celebrity races and that thing. And I've never retired, so uh, obviously I'm not coming back <laughs> any near future anyway. But uh, <clears throat> it <clears throat> it uh, it seemed to be the right time for me at the time. And of course, even in retirement of Parnelli Jones, you're always talking about his career as we are right now, and that includes whether or not there were some rivalries with Parnelli and some drivers that, even though obviously in the end everything works out, were there those that on the racetrack Parnelli might have rubbed elbows with that rubbed the wrong way? We'll get into that, and we'll continue discussing the 1963 Indianapolis 500-mile winner on this, his 88th birthday. We'll do so with Donald Davidson when we come back to Beyond the Bricks. Well, I can best describe that by <clears throat> the next, uh, you know, I went to the banquet uh, the next evening or whenever that, the next day I left to drive home back to Los Angeles. And uh, when I was went to leave town, it was like leaving your house when you know you forgot something and you don't know what it is. And it, that feeling went on for a long time. And even when I came back the following year, I had the same feeling, and uh, it took me a while to get over that feeling that just, like I left something there, and uh, and I did. 
That's Parnelli Jones talking about that 1967 Indianapolis 500-mile race in which he led 171 laps. The race was ultimately won by A.J. Foyt, the third of Foyt's four wins. And speaking of A.J. Foyt, turns out that Parnelli Jones and A.J. Foyt, two names that are synonymous with racing greatness at Indianapolis in the 60s, but were they rivals, and did they have bad blood between them? Here's Parnelli talking about his relationship with A.J. Foyt. Uh, one day we had a midget race at Ascot in California, and, uh, uh, and it was in the trophy dash. And uh, anyway, I, was, I, I don't remember what happened. I was trying to get by him or something, and he spun me out. And so I went back in, in the pits, and I told my mechanic, I said, that's it. I ain't talking to that sucker again. I don't want nothing to do with him, blah, 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 and on. So right before the main event, where I was down adjusting the torsion bar on my midget, and this body comes r- hugging me from behind, and it was A.J., like a big huggy teddy bear. And, you know, how do you stay mad at somebody like that? So, And we've always had that kind of relationship. I've been to, down to Texas and spent a few days down there with him at different times and uh, enjoyed my relationship with him. We've traveled a lot in the airplanes. I, I even went up in the airplane with him when he soloed for his first time. And so... And I, but I wasn't very bright either. So, But anyway, we've had a lot of great times together. Jake Quarry along with Mike Thompson, Donald Davidson here as well. Mike, the reality is, as I listen to that, I think to myself, I wonder if sucker is really the word he used. I believe that's probably not the word, but I also think that he's probably the only guy who gets away with AJ's a big huggy teddy bear. That's I mean, right. like go around if you if you see AJ this weekend, you know, remember that time you were a big huggy teddy bear. I See how far that'll get you. Uh, Donald Davidson joins us as well, the historian of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Donald, it's interesting because, you know, when we think about, I think to me, let me let me give you a perspective, Donald, and you tell me if you think it's off base. When I look at the guys that, that many call, you know, kind of the great generation of drivers, the Bobby Unser, Parnelli, Al Unser, A.J. Foyt, Mario Andretti, one of the things that I admire about it is it just kind of felt like those are guys that all had a tremendous respect and maybe even love for one another. But when that green flag fell until the checkered did, it was every man for himself. Yeah, I would agree with that. I know there was a couple of times when uh, when Parnelli was just a little bit disappointed with Foyt, but, um, and they were great rivals. And, and one thing about Parnelli's personality, and, and I'll go two different ways on this, um, he was a very nice guy, always very, very courteous. I mean, you can hear that in the interviews now, but even when I was first around and he was the man, he was very, very courteous, very, very kind. Um, but he had a temper. And I was thinking of many a time when people said, oh, you know, Foyt had the worst temper of any driver and he would, you know, beat on the cars and stuff like that. You know what? I think Parnelli, when Parnelli was mad, that was worse than Foyt. <laughs> but yes, they do. Um, um, they all had a very strong regard for each other. And in fact, they were partners because in 1979, I don't think this gets much play, but when Foyt finished second in 79, I think I've got this right, that um, they used to Bell's Parnelli Jones' uh, car, I think, as the Gilmore Racing Team car. And so I, I think you would probably consider them partners on that second place finish in 79. 
Donald, before we let you go, Donald Davidson joins us. Jake Quarry here along with Mike Thompson. This is Beyond the Bricks. Tomorrow night, by the way, will be our final version for this installment of Beyond the Bricks before we get to racing at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway over the course of the weekend. We'll talk tomorrow, speaking of four-time winners, about Elio Castroneves. That'll be the subject for our broadcast tomorrow night. Um, but, Donald, because it's the first time publicly that, that I've spoken with you, um, we lost, and Mike and I talked a lot about it on Monday when we began this program or this week's installment of it. Uh, I know that Bob Jenkins is beloved by race fans, understandably and rightly so, as someone who has served in multiple capacities talking into multiple microphones about a place that he so loved at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. But very few people, if any, worked alongside Bob for as long and perhaps as closely as you did, and I wanted to give you the opportunity to speak uh, on your recollections and memories of your coworker and friend, Bob Jenkins. Oh, I have so many, and uh, what a joy it was to work with him, and uh, not only on the radio network, but we also emceed, you know, we co-emceed banquets together, and uh, they, they, uh, I was invited to uh, participate on, uh, on Speed Week uh, many, many times, and the Thunder Shows and everything like that. And just Bob was a very decent, kind person. I mean, he just had no hang-ups at all. Just a very, very good, gracious, and humble person. And uh, I, we, uh, we had other common interests that were not motor racing, but rather than get into that. But he truly was a fan since boyhood. And I remember that when he, he, he said to me one time that he'd emceed the, uh, the winter circle, uh, 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 banquet, and he said, "I got to meet Art Cross, who had uh, <laughs> whose last start was 1955." And when when Bob was a little boy, like seven, eight, nine years old, Art Cross was one of his favorite drivers. So uh, I just had many, many very enjoyable times with him. We talked on the phone a lot, and it was just very sad what happened in uh, in uh, the recent months. So, but. Um, I don't know that I could really do him justice, but but the the one thing I would say beyond all, not only was a great broadcaster, very knowledgeable, but just a very decent human being. I think the thing that is so fascinating about Bob Jenkins, Donald, um, I actually put you in this same category, but I always respected so greatly the fact that Bob Jenkins could meet a young race car driver and be thrilled at meeting them yeah. and completely oblivious to the fact that the thrill was the drivers. Oh. You, you know what I mean? And that the driver's thinking, you're Bob Jenkins. Are you kidding me? And Bob was uh, the line that I've used, and, and I've said it a lot, but I don't know that I w- have been around somebody who had a greater chasm between their level of accomplishment and rank and yeah. their own understanding of their level of accomplishment and rank in a good way than Bob Jenkins. Absolutely. Was it you that told me about Brad Keselowski? That, uh, was it you that told me that? I know that Brad Keselowski had reached out to him during his journey of of his health issue and 
and really was good to him and sent him several packages and things like that. Well, I heard that, that Bob was had a, was going to be interviewing Brad Keselowski, and he wasn't sure how he would be. This is very quite recent. And then when the opportunity came up, you know, he didn't know if it was going to be just a you know, little distant. And, and Brad Keselowski, Brad Keselowski was, was gushing, and he said, oh, no, no, when I was a little boy. And he said, you know, you were the voice. You were the man that was doing the broadcast, and he was idolizing Bob. <laughs> Donald, when I think of when I think of Bob I, and and you, I think similar because you guys both really lived your dream. I mean, Bob, you know, he tells us, you know, he told us all the time he was a race fan who just, you know, he got lucky. And and I think, you know, his story is, you know, he he grew up watching these guys and then got to be a part of the the traveling show. And and I I think his story and your story are a little bit similar. Did you guys ever really feel like that, Donald? That you, you know, you guys both, you know. You had a you had a dream. He had a dream, and you both have gotten to live your dreams, really. Yes, absolutely. But he was so complimentary, and I, I remember one time when uh, um, <laughs> I, I I forgive me on this one, but um, I used to do on Talk of Gasoline Alley. I was doing interviews for a while, and I did Mario, and I never wanted to do what the, the what's it like out there type of thing. I wanted to do inside stuff, so I got Mario talking about himself and interests, and he was talking about opera and stuff like that. And I remember I was, um, I would think I was going up to the pagoda, and Bob was coming down. Anyway, we met on the steps, and he stopped in front of me, and he pointed a finger at my chest, and he said, "You are good." And I'll never forget that because it was such a compliment coming from him, and I just really, really enjoyed working with him. I mean, we yes, we we were both fans, and uh, it was so. I remember when he when he said about the fact he said I got to meet Art Cross and he was just like a little kid, and uh, just yeah just a, a lovely lovely decent person and I yet always prepared right I mean he was all you know even when Bob Jenkins might have been momentarily starstruck if you will to that point of meeting a driver yeah. I, I can't imagine a time where he would have been caught off guard or not prepared for the conversation. Oh, no, well, listen to some of his calls. I mean, he was terrific. He had a way with words, and, and uh, you know, those things were spontaneous. Some of those race calls, they didn't have time to sit down and think, all right, now what am I going to say when this happens? It was in front of them, and they just had to do it, and and some of them were classics. Yeah, his call, I he gets a lot of credit, rightly so, for the 92 call yeah. with Al Unser and Scott Goodyear. I thought his call passing it to Paul Page in 82 with John Cock and Mears was so good because it set the table perfectly. So he was the perfect anchor and the perfect setup man, but um, a, a dear man, a legendary broadcaster, and a, a friend to all, both that knew him and that listened to him on the microphone. Donald, appreciate the time tonight and looking at Parnelli Jones. So much fun that I'm just going to go ahead and automatically say that you're going to join us tomorrow night to talk about Elio Castroneves. I'll that sound good? Thank you both. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> Donald Davidson, the historian of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Mike Thompson, Sam Rumsa on the big board. Uh, Mike, tomorrow night we're talking four-time winner. Sound good? Uh, always sounds good to me. All right. Sounds good. We'll talk to you tomorrow night, 8 o'clock for Beyond the Bricks.